Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri Jewelry creates imperfect and fragmented modern heirlooms, inspired by Dante Alighieri's journey from the darkness of Inferno to the light of Paradiso. At the beginning of his journey, Dante enters the Silver Oscura, the dark wood, and is confronted by a lion so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. Scared and alone, Dante feels like giving up on his journey. It is at this point, Virgil, his guide, appears and gives him the strength to continue. Female founder Rosh Matani created the Leone Medallion inspired by this story as a reminder to be strong in difficult times. Join Alighieri's Signature Lion Club for strength and courage on all of your adventures. Visit www.alighieri.co.uk for more. And just for our listeners, they are offering 10% off with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most acclaimed artists working in the world right now, Jordan Castile. Born and raised in Denver and now based in New York, Castile is hailed for her portraits and landscapes imbued with expressivity and authenticity, gestural brushwork and bold swathes of colour, which capture the fleeting and very real moments of life, closeness and honest relationships. Since receiving her BA from Agnes Scott College, Georgia, for studio art in 2011, and her MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale School of Art in 2014, the past seven years for Castile have been monumental. In 2020, she presented a critically acclaimed major solo exhibition titled Within Reach at the New Museum in New York, and other recent institutional exhibitions include Jordan Castile, Returning the Gaze, presented at both Denver Art Museum and the Iris B. Gerald Cantor Center for Visual Arts at Stanford University. In recent years, she has participated in exhibitions at institutional venues such as SF MoMA, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Met, Crystal Bridges, Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Los Angeles, the Studio Museum in Harlem, where between 2015 and 2016, she participated in their prestigious residency program, among many others. Castile's paintings have graced the front cover of American Vogue, Time magazine, and in 2019 were blown up to 1,400 square foot for Manhattan's Highline. And as of 2021, Castile is also the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. But the reason why we are speaking with Jordan today, in London, I might add, is because she has just unveiled one of the most hotly anticipated exhibitions of the year and her first 
ever UK solo exhibition at Massimo Di Carlo here in London. There is a season, a show focusing on the minutiae of daily interactions, conversations and connections, which embraces the ebb and flow of lived experiences articulated by the rhythmic tick of time, which I cannot wait to find out more about. Jordan Castile, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am so good, Katie. This is literally <laughs> one of the best introductions I think I've ever had. I was over here like, wow, disassociating, I think, a bit. Like, I can't believe that's me. Yes, well, you've yeah. done a lot. It's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so exciting. Oh, so Jordan, it is such an honor to speak to you today. And I can I just say, us in London have been waiting for this solo exhibition for so many years. And we're so thrilled that it's finally here. So thank you for speaking with me. When I see your paintings, it's like time stops. They are these worlds, these immortalizations of relationships, homes, people, conversation, memories. They are utterly transfixing, whether they be cropped hands or full frontal nudes who lock our eyes. They feel so personal, but at the same time so universal. And for me, they are about humanity, our deep, fleeting interactions with each other. So I want to start off by asking you, how do you want people to feel in front of your work? I mean, you said it beautifully. I think the thing that I'm most interested in is people stopping and enjoying all the aspects of what it means to be a human, what their own body feels like in front of these monumental scale paintings. So the ability to learn more about the strokes when you get close, but also to step back and see the bigger picture of who somebody is and what this moment might be. It is about time. It is about pausing. It is about humanity. It's about all of these moments that define who we are. And the fact that you just felt that is exactly what I hope people feel when they approach the work. So that's a real honor to hear you say that. Oh my God, but it's an honor just to be in this gallery to witness these paintings. When I get up close to your paintings, it's almost like abstract versions unfold within like the Mm. texture. I mean, we were just having a look at the kind of metal tin section on like a subway. Mm. The fact that you emphasize that and that becomes a kind of painting in itself. Yes. I mean, the fact that you're saying that is also so true. The thing that I want people to see and recognize that I am a painter above all else. And my love of the material, I think, shines through in those moments when you are close and you're experiencing the thickness of paint and the relationships between colors and the abstraction that exists within that, that I am really invested in the relationships, not only between strokes and people, it's all of those things combined. So stepping up close and it dissecting and kind of melting in front of you, the image, and then stepping back and seeing it all come back together is a really special thing that I want people to experience. Yeah. And I should mention in this show, there's a beautiful scene of someone actually sitting amongst snow and the Mm. kind of silence of that and the thickness Mm. of that. Absolutely. I love the fact that that can coat. The idea of snow is it becomes this all embodying experience. We are usually trapped inside. It covers all the dirt and decay and whatever in the city, especially in New York. And then it melts again and we get a renewal. It's a refresher in many ways. And this show, that was central to the thing that I was thinking about is renewal and what it means to kind of start again. What does it mean for me to rebirth? There is a season. There's always going to be a new season. And this is one in my life that I'm excited to kind of be a part of and share Absolutely. But I mean, since you left college, I mean, the focus of your work has very much been people and portraiture. I mean, what draws you to using the figure in painting? Mm. I have always been a keen observer of people. It is deeply a part of who I am. As a child, I recall sitting back and oftentimes in corners in many ways. I was in, I was, I was the kid in the corner who was just watching people interact. I was always curious about how people were engaging with one another and what made someone happy and what made someone sad. And I think that deep observational sense of self, my empathetic 
proportions. I've always cried when other people cry. It doesn't matter if it's on TV or someone on the street. I feel people's joy, what energy is in the room. I feel very deeply. So I think that those kind of inclinations of self have definitely enhanced or played a huge part in my desire to investigate through paint those relationships further. It just becomes a tool painting for me to investigate relationships and get to know people on a deeper level in the way that I often want to and maybe don't always have access to. Yeah, I love that. They're kind of like explorations into who mm. people are. It's kind mm. of uncovering. It's trying to get into the kind of lock into the other mindset Totally, of totally. And for me, these are real relationships. It can start with the introduction and asking to participate in this project. Some of the subjects are people that I'm meeting for the first time in the moment that I have captured them. Others I have known my whole life and I have asked to represent them. In that moment of asking them to be in the painting, it can transform our knowing of one another. I do feel like I get a chance to get to know something I didn't know before. Because of time, I get to spend real time with them, which is a gift I really treasure. And then us as viewers get to spend time with the paintings. Yeah, and that, that so that's my gift actually, to you. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I love we that. feel that energy. I mean, I was just saying, you know, we were just next door and the figures feel like they're breathing. You can feel mm. that. It doesn't mm. matter if they're looking the other way or they have their eyes shut. You can feel that like warm blood. Yeah, yeah. You can feel that you are in front of them. You're really seeing someone and engaging. And I think the time that painting allows is really spectacular. It's beyond us holding our phones and moving from point A to point B. It allows pause, which I think is a very important part of life, is pausing in front of those who we are in front of. Yeah. And I have to say this Thelma Golden quote, because I mean, it's just uh, sensational. She sums up your painting perfectly. Of course she does. She says, what we see <laughs> when we look at one of Jordan's portraits is her ability to represent her subjects in their fullness. She is able to capture a sense of spirit, a sense of self and a sense of soul. How do you set out to portray your figures? I mean, what is your kind of aim to address? That's a great question. I think... There isn't always a very specific aim because the figures sort of determine for themselves their people. So it's those people that to kind of define for me what I need to say. And it's very individual. So I think each painting has its own story that needs to be told. My job is to kind of coax that out of the moment and to kind of see them however they want to be represented. So I am often phrasing the question, what is it that you want to be a part of this painting? How do you want to be seen? It's a real collaborative space. I'd like to think that I'm just dictating it all, but in many ways I'm not. It's a collaboration through and through, which is why many of my openings, the subjects are there. They are a part of the experience. This is different and new for me in many ways because none of them will be here. They have been so intrinsic to the experience of these paintings. So they dictate it for themselves. I don't know if there is one thing that I am trying to achieve in all the paintings. Every individual painting is dictating what it needs and I just have to listen. That's the empathetic part of who I am is I, I get to listen and then respond and then share. And then hopefully other people get to see something as a result of the time I've spent. Well, maybe you have to pick up some sitters in London as well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, traveling is something that always allows opportunity to get to know people and places and spaces differently. But I have always felt that there is a strong need for me to have time in a place to live or have proximity for a consistent period of time to represent the people that I do. I think otherwise I worry that it could enter a more voyeuristic space that I come in and I leave. But sustaining relationships is a part of the practice for me. And that sustaining comes with also proximity and a more consistent basis. But I love the sense of scale in your work. These paintings 
dominate galleries. And what I love about it, especially, you know, in London, we have the National Gallery. And for me, your paintings are on a sort of part of history paintings. Mm. It's kind of how like Rubens would immortalize its figures or something. I mean, why do you work on such monumental scale? What an honor to even think of that. There were a few things that occurred for me very early on in my practice. When I was in graduate school, I was thinking very explicitly about what it would mean to make a painting. I wanted to be very thoughtful about every aspect of the painting that I was making as it was representing black and brown bodies, particularly men, that being as respectful of them and thoughtful, I needed to think about the material, I needed to think about the scale, I needed to think about the color. Every aspect of the painting was going to be part of telling the story. And the scale for me played two parts. One, I wanted them to feel like they could enter a room in the same way that you and I could, that they could step out of the frame and be just as easily a part of the environments that they are in as you and I are. And also, I love the idea that people had to make room for them. There was a literal and physical action that would have to take place as people choose to live with these paintings, that they have to make room for the lives and the stories that I am telling because they deserve that. I think they have earned that. It's an important part of the practice for me. And then being able to step up and step back, to experience abstraction, and then to step back and see the completeness of representation or the figure or whoever it is or the space or the landscape that I'm trying to tell. So there's layers to the scale for me, but it checks all of those boxes. Having something that you enter and get to experience on a large scale is important. Absolutely. They're just kind of all consuming. And what do you think are the kind of potentials of paint? I mean, why do you like to use paint? It's a question that I am always yearning to answer, and yet perhaps because I don't get many opportunities to, it is also a difficult question because I think that it is something that is deeply innate within me. I remember trying to paint for the first time. I was studying abroad in Italy. I did an art kind of semester in Cortona in Tuscany, and I took a painting class, a jewelry class, a bookmaking class. And I thought jewelry making was going to be the thing I'd fall in love with. And the paint, there was something about the viscosity of the paint and the way that it could be applied and taken away and that I could use color. I love color. I've always been obsessed with color. I could use it and I could manipulate it. And the act of mixing colors was really exciting to me. I loved taking a palette knife and using my hands in this really visceral way to create different shades of something that I hadn't imagined before, that I could kind of create whatever it was that I wanted. So I think that paint and all the qualities of paint and its ability to constantly offer opportunities is part of what I love most about it. Like I'm always learning. This is so me at the beginning. I can't wait to have this conversation again in 50 years from now because I think the things that I will have learned about the material will have grown infinitely. And I love that. I love that it has opportunities for growth and learning at all times. Totally. And just, again, just witnessing these works that I've just saw. I mean, the way that you bring kind of personality, whether it be mm. through shop fronts or it be through leaves or, you know, through shoes or, so, yeah. or tires. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That is like what paint can do. It yeah. can create that from scratch. Exactly. And sometimes I do something, it's usually an accident in some ways. I feel like I don't know how to resolve a question around painting and I try something and then trying that thing gets me really excited. It either works or it doesn't work, but when it works, it's magic. It's like, oh, I need to now figure out what it was that I did so I can do it again. And then I kind of keep kind of pushing and pushing the layers of the process. And that's the best part for me. I get lost in it. 
I can imagine. Mm. I can imagine. So I want to come back to your work in a bit, but I'd love to go back to your early life. I mean, you were mm. born in 1989 in Denver, Colorado. I mean, tell me about your upbringing. I mean, was art always present in your life? Yeah, more or less. I feel really lucky. My grandmother was actually on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. She was in no question of mine, the person who kind of dictated art in the family. She loved art. She loved dance. She loved theater. She loved the visual arts. She was just a huge patron and enjoyed it through and through. And I think that enjoyment of hers really trickled down to me. It meant that she collected work at really young ages of artists. So we had Charles White and Emma Amos in like what? Prince and things, yeah. And <laughs> Ramar so Beard, cool. Ramar Beard, and all those works were kind of in proximity to me. And I wasn't aware of the provenance of those artists, but I knew that they were telling stories that felt familiar to my own. And that was a pretty magical experience, especially as I've continued on this journey, as I look back and think about the things that influenced my vocabulary. It was very ripe. It was everywhere. And I had champions. And I think that's a real gift to have somebody who sees potential. I just liked making and my grandmother would buy me all these kits that would be like, I don't know, tie-dyeing or whatever it was. <laughs> and I would love it. I just liked making and she encouraged that and my parents encouraged that. And I think that's a really huge part of why I, I feel confident stepping into this space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've read that you have maybe a Elizabeth Catlett work at home as yeah. well. And you love Tar Beach as yeah, a child. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, Tar Beach, I was so obsessed with Tar Beach. My dad hunted <laughs> down a, a print of Faith Ringles that was represented of that, like one of the scenes of Tar Beach and gave it to me as like a child because I was like obsessed. I mean, it was one of those very early books that I recall being attached to. Because I just felt like it was me and my brothers. It was like us on the roof. It was telling my story. It wasn't as frequent as it should have been. That's probably why I was attached to it as well. But it, I later became quite obsessed with face work. Yeah. Gosh, I love how Cassie Lightfoot was like your first hero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like she was like my first guide. She was my little spirit animal. I just needed to be Cassie and fly above the stars. So. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think these artists and their work taught you as a person, but also you about art? I think they taught me to find my own voice. I think the power of making, the power of storytelling, the power of stepping into one's own truth. I felt like seeing all their work and the vast differences and similarities amongst what they were representing or the material they were using, that anything is possible with the medium that you find best suited for you. I think their kind of sense of confidence and self really imbued something in me and knowing that I could do the same, that anything was possible. I could see the potential to a degree, the potential of being an artist in them. I still had a lot of doubts and sometimes do. It's crazy. But as a young person, for me, it was like, I don't know if it's actually possible. And they were the reminders that it was. Well, yeah, anyone can fly. All you got to do is yeah, try. Yeah, <laughs> literally. All you have to do is try. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. But I mean, then between 2007 and 2011, you received your BA in studio art at Agnes Scott. I mean, interestingly, you studied anthropology and sociology. You mentioned earlier you are this observer of yeah, life. I mean, yeah. how did you make the transition from 
anthropology to art. I mean, it's all the same, isn't it? It is. It's like the study of people. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, I think to be an artist, it doesn't make sense. I'd had those artists in my home, but I didn't know any living working artists. I didn't understand contemporarily speaking that there was ever any potential to pursue the arts. I'm a very practical person. I am type A above all else. (laughs) And for me, the practicality of becoming an artist versus studying, I mean, sociology, anthropology also isn't that practical. Um, But I pursued a liberal arts degree thinking if I can write, if I can communicate, I can do anything. If I have those skill sets, then I'll figure the rest out. And much of that became true. I studied sociology and anthropology because I love people. All those parts of who I am seemed well suited for that course of study. And then it was studying abroad in Italy when I fell in love with painting. It was, I mean, truly like a romanticized, like under the Tuscan sun, kind of my own version of it, because I was just under the Tuscan sun thinking I am in love. I didn't understand even at that point. It wasn't until I was at Yale that I understood the potential for working contemporarily. And that potential and seeing my peers working really transformed what I saw as opportunities that I could try for as well. Up until that point, I had no idea that it was possible. It was just the thing I loved. It's still, and maintaining that is a huge part of the practice. This thing that I love, it can't kind of overwhelm me in the commercial side of it. It's making sure that my love comes first above all else for the material and the things that I'm painting. Yeah, and just being grateful that, you know, you get to do this as work. I yeah, mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> the it's fact amazing. that I get to interview you as work is amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a real dream. And maintaining a sense of love for it is what is going to be a sustaining force, I think, in the longevity of my practice. Otherwise, if it becomes too much about everybody else's wants and needs, then I can lose the work. And the work is a very personal endeavor. Yeah, but you see that. I mean, I love it how you just, you immortalize those around you. Mm. I mean, it is so personal and just the record of it. And I mean, I can't wait to, you know, see everything that you do. Mm. And I mean, it's just going to be extraordinary. That's why I'm, I'm literally like, what is Jordan's <laughs> new show about? I need to see this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But then, I mean, between 2012 and 2014, you went to Yale. I mean, how did things change for you there? And like, I mean, how did paint change for you? Everything changed for me there. I was painting in a second bedroom up until that point. I had had a year between undergraduate and graduate where I was painting in a second bedroom. I was teaching special education in Denver. I had done Teach for America. I had stepped away from that commitment in a pursuit for my MFA. I wanted to kind of get an MFA to teach. It was always about teaching initially. It was An MFA will allow me to teach on a collegiate level, and I want that training. But getting into Yale transformed everything, and I had a sense that it would. I I didn't imagine I could get into a place like that. Like, who was I? I was not the person who had been training my whole life. I was not the person who had, like, the ambition of I will be an artist my whole life. I loved making art. I loved creating. I had always been doing it, but I was not formal in the ways that I felt that my peers were, in the relationships that they had to making. And it intimidated me. I was scared out of my mind. I had literally three paintbrushes I had bought from Michaels. Literally, I had gotten canvases from Michaels up until that point. I had never gone into a legitimate art store. I mean, not, you know, bless Michaels. It was great. It's an art store (laughs) in New York. But I didn't imagine that I could survive in that environment. And Not only did I survive, I ultimately have thrived. I didn't feel like I was thriving while I was there most of the time. But I think that partially what came to be was I I stayed true to myself. I really 
was unwavering because in my head, I was just so grateful to be there. I didn't have a whole lot of ego involved because I didn't think that I belonged. So I, I was there and I was in gratitude and I took every opportunity to learn and leaned into it. And I think that has formed my relationship to the practice still, that I'm just so in awe of the way that things have unfolded that I have taken to the best of my ability every moment and every opportunity fully and tried to understand that being as present and as grateful as possible is the most true to who I am. I, I didn't expect any of this ever. So Yale was transformational because I got access to people who knew a whole lot more than I did. And I got to ask them a whole lot of questions. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. And most of them gave me answers. So I'm grateful for that. You know? Always ask. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know until you ask and you definitely don't know until you try. And I threw my hat in the ring and I am really grateful for that and the people who gave me an opportunity to try. And that has been the practice. It's like, try. What's the worst that can happen? You fail and failure, I don't even know if that's a real thing. It's, it's an opportunity to learn and then try again. Totally. I mean, it's so interesting for me, you really do kind of leave any ego behind in the mm. sense that in these paintings, you feel that so much. They take over their personalities and you can feel that in the sense that you have clearly analyzed or just looked and explored this person. You spent time mm. speaking with them. And I mean, interestingly, your subjects really shifted here. I mean, this was the first part of the Visible Man series. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, how did like that series come about and what were your kind of motives behind yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, I was in graduate school preparing for a thesis. I was terrified of whatever I was going to do, but I was really clear that I wanted to use at that moment, the act of painting to tell the story of something that was really important to me. And that was creating an opportunity for people to see and understand the black male and my relationship to them, because I always felt very present in those paintings. For me, it was always about the relationship between me as a black woman and them as black men. It wasn't just a singular story about them. It was about the way that we related to one another. And I needed to make that work. Why? I'm not entirely clear. I know that I... I had to tell that story and I felt at that time that people needed to see and understand the relationships that I had with people that I love in a way that I felt that they hadn't yet. That painting would be an opportunity for me as an individual, as a maker, as the person who labors and blood, sweat, tears, all of the things that you're describing goes into it. Maybe I can show them something they haven't seen before. Maybe they get to experience these people that I love and get to know them in the way that I love them. That is ultimately, in many ways, I think what has made that body of work so long standing. It is a body of work that is referenced very frequently contextually now, even as I'm like almost like 10 years out of that. It's a really long time ago in some ways <laughs> that I was making those works. But it, it, it was important because I think that it transforms for people their own sense of understanding of the bodies that are being represented, the people that are being represented. It really kind of dissects and lays bare all that is true about them and all that is true about me. And they get to experience that. And that's a pretty special thing. Yeah, I love how they're such private moments as mm. well. You just like catch them, like this one Cornelius who's just sort of sitting on his bedroom floor and the light is just kind of coming in just slightly. And mm. we just get a glimpse of him or, or Miles, you know, just sitting on a sofa mm. casually. You really kind of get in the sort of domesticity of these men and Absolutely. just explore them for who they are in their private space. But I'm fascinated to ask, as a woman, I mean, what did you find if you did sort of uncover something about masculinity, maybe? I think the thing that I 
experience because what everyone uncovers I think could be different. For me, I can only speak to my experience of masculinity and femininity and what I was kind of seeking to uncover. And I think it was a certain vulnerability. I was really trying to meet people where they are. And in that effort to meet these men where they were, I really hoped to uncover a sense of calm for them, a sense of peace, a sense of belonging that other people could experience as well. And I hope that that happened as you're describing Cornelius. Like I remember the day that I photographed him. The question is always, where do you want to be? He, We couldn't exactly figure out. He was sharing an apartment with other people. We were in his room and there were all these clothes on the floor in the corner. And I remember being like, this feels like an important part, like there were, it felt the most true for him in that moment. And I asked him to kind of step into that space and share it with me so that I could share it with others. And there was a lot of trust involved in that. It ultimately becomes about an act of trust. And that trust brings vulnerability and safety. And I hope that other people experience that as well. I really think they do. You see so much of that, the way that they lock eyes with you. It's a conversation between the viewer as well, as like a sort of third dimension sort of coming in. It's As a viewer, I kind of feel let in because your work's also friendly in a way. You're let in in this private space between you and Cornelius as well, which is a privilege. Yeah, it is. And I think that the gaze... You're right. It commands your attention as well as it softens your experience. It can be intimate, but it was just like the decision about the scale. The gaze was a huge part, especially in that body of work where I wanted them to take up space and I wanted them to be unapologetically present wherever they went, that they were going to command a certain amount of attention, that they couldn't be denied any longer. And I think that that happens, that has stayed in this practice because I think it is really important that people see all the people in the way that I'm seeing. It's also indicative of my presence. Their gaze is referencing them looking at me too. So it's looking at the subject, at the people who are looking at the work. The subjects are, yes, they're looking out into the world, but it's also very directly tied to my moment with them. And that's an important part of the practice. Definitely, definitely. And then in 2015, you moved to Harlem, where you became an artist in residence at the Studio Museum. I mean, how was your experience living in Harlem? I mean, I'm aware that your grandfather, after he passed, had this amazing procession. I mean, there is so much rich history there. I mean, what was it like to live there? Ah, I mean, I'm still living there because I fell in love. I think that it was a transformative moment for me in my relationship to New York. I'm a Colorado girl at heart. I am casual as all get out. I am interested in nature. I love being outside. And the city intimidated me. I did not understand how people could move so quickly all the time. (laughs) Everybody was on a mission. I didn't know where I belonged in their mission. I just needed to get out of the way. And that was hard. And when I got the residency at the Studio Museum, it was the first time that I felt a sense of home, partially because of the community at the Studio Museum. It had a lot to do with the museum itself. My love for Harlem started at the museum and it was because of the safety that they provided me. It was a moment where I could kind of shed all the anticipations or pressures or the intimidation that I felt of the city and just be present with other artists and with curators and with Thelma and in this really historic place that I knew had housed and created spaces for many artists that I loved and adored. I also just love going on the street and literally being in the middle of all sorts of kind of energy every day, being on 125th. There's so much to find in Harlem and I found myself more than anything there. It's kept me, there's no question. 
Amazing. And then obviously you started your Knights in Harlem series. You began interacting with the people in the local neighborhood. I mean, how did that kind of process happen? Did you just go up to them? Tell me about the genesis. Yeah, I mean, my show at the Studio Museum was the first time that I was kind of casting from the street. I really noticed pretty immediately that people were curating their outdoor spaces in the same way that I was experiencing with the Visible Man series in somebody's home context, that they felt like little intimate spaces kind of trickled all over the street. And I just decided one day I was gonna say hello. I am more shy than I am not. And it was very intimidating to kind of approach people that I had no kind of contextual relationships with outside of living in Harlem with them. But I found that every single person I approached, I made a friend, a family member. I got a chance to laugh and share. James was the first person that I painted and captured, and I have since painted him three times. He's actually even represented in this show, in the still life, the little portrait of a couple on the table with the, the, it's James's house that I represented in that still life. And that's him and Yvonne in the little portrait frame. And I just can't get enough of him. And I wouldn't have gotten that if I hadn't have said hello. He has been a real staple in my life. And I have so much gratitude for Harlem in that, that it proved as a reminder that you don't know who you're walking past. Like you never know who has the potential of becoming your next best friend or somebody who's gonna love and care for you that you also get to share that with. All those Harlem paintings have proved that's the most important part for me are these relationships that I've built along the way. Totally, I love the idea that there's something quite inherently painterly anyway Mm. about just the way people live. Mm. Yeah, there is. I mean, genuinely, they're curating for themselves. James had curated, (laughs) A, his outfit, like every day he was dressed. He looks amazing. So dapper. And then the space, the light, Harlem. I mean, oftentimes I move through the world and I'm like, that's a painting, that's a painting, that's a painting. Like, it's like there are paintings all over the place if we're willing to kind of see it. It's all about the way that we see the world. This is a stroke of my observations. The whole practice from the beginning to the end are the things that I have seen along the way in my short life. (laughs) And there are many things I hope to see in the future. And then other people get to see them along with me. It's like we all get to take the journey together. But what I love about artists is the way that, as a viewer, I actually see this kind of world differently because of your paintings. Yeah, in the sense yeah. that, oh my God, that could be a Jordan Castile painting. Or, or the fact that what I love about these works as well is they feel like worlds collided or mm. worlds accumulated in this mm. one painting. Like James and Yvonne or something is one of my favorite ones in the sense that these are just two people. They've lived such long lives. Mm. There is so much there. I love how it kind of, this sort of divine light that is at the mm. back of it. It's like the extent of their long life and this beautiful relationship that is clearly so whole. Mm. Nailed it. I mean, literally, <laughs> <Good. that's> a, <laughs> there's not much else to be said to that because it is. I think they are a divine light. They have held that space for me. It's hard for me to talk about them without getting emotional emotional because they have taken a piece of my heart. We lost Yvonne a few years ago, but James and I are still in really constant contact. And when I made that painting, I had very quickly after painting him the first time met Yvonne and realized that she was always next to him. So it's kind of a crazy thing that I captured him on a day that he was (laughs) on his own. So I, I asked them to paint them together. And that painting in particular is something that I will always treasure because she was alive and I got to capture a portrait of her because she was ultimately kind of the rock in the relationship for me. Uh, She called me at least once a week just to see what I was doing and how I was. And that day I was just sitting on the cardboard with them and I had brought them soup. It was really cold and I was homesick. So I think that they were 
very much indicative of a light for me that's pretty remarkable that you feel that. No, it's, it's a really, really beautiful painting. Mm. God, what an amazing record mm. to have for James as well. Yeah. But I love the fact that as well in the sort of from about 2017, 18, I mean, you've been exploring these beautiful works in the subway as well, which, I mean, her turn remains mm. one of my favorite works. It's one of mine. Yeah. But I mean, this is also so fascinating in the sense that, you know, something like Golden Girl or her turn, I mean, the fact that actually these people are no longer full frontal, they're no longer mm. looking at us. And mm. so what happened here? Yeah. And what happened <laughs> is the relationship changed. Those relationships are different. They're more fleeting for me. Their observations on a very transient space where I am coming and going as are they. And the relationship isn't one where we are in conversation. And that honoring for me, the change in that relationship where we are not in conversation, that they're more observational, they're more investigations for me, they're my own reflections. It's the seeing of myself in moments sometimes, well, very oftentimes, if I think about God bless the child, where there is a woman holding her child, or if I think about, yeah, golden girl, all of those moments are times where I probably felt the exhaustion of someone else, that I felt the hold of their hands, I felt the turn of their back, and connected to it in some capacity, and used painting as an opportunity to kind of explore more internally my experience of them in that transient space. Totally. The fact that they are these kind of fleeting memories and the kind mm. of quickness of life mm. as well, and how, you know, you see people on the subway or the underground here, and, you know, you might never see them again. Yeah, exactly. And it's like preserving that really sacred moment. Absolutely. But we're all sitting there and we're often looking around or not. I, in New York, it's like, don't look, make eye contact. But <laughs> I'm often looking around. And in looking around, there are reflections of myself everywhere. And it is in exhaustion. It is in joy. It is in connection. It is in clothing or patterns. And the painting just becomes an opportunity to kind of step into that more fully. Yeah, and even as a viewer, be challenged as well if like someone's hair is like I'm shielding their face yeah, with that cap. It's like exactly. okay, actually, is this more of a reflection of me? Yes. Am I bringing myself into this work? Yes, exactly. Which is a pretty special thing that you get to engage and imagine yourself there more explicitly. Totally. And then in 2019, you made this beautiful series called The Practice of Freedom about your students at Rutgers University. I mean, how was that dynamic? Uh it was one of the greatest gifts of my life. I, that's another body of work that can draw an immense amount of emotion from me because they are such transformative human beings who have inspired me in ways that I always felt I wasn't able to share, that I would disappear in the classroom with them and we had this oasis and we would talk and I would get to know them. But the practice of making those paintings meant that I got to enter their homes. They welcomed me into a completely different dimension and that dimension allowed me to get to know them in ways that I would have never in the context of our relationship in the classroom. My teaching philosophy was always based around how to deconstruct the power structures within the classroom. I mean, I already told you about being at Yale and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Being really honest about that, I'm here to learn. And I started time in the classroom the exact same way. I'm here to learn with you. I do not know everything. I can guarantee you I am not the keeper of knowledge. But what I am is a guide who gets to help structure a way for you to learn. And we get to learn together. And I think that kind of deconstruction of relationship meant I got to build relationships with them that were centered around their own individual wants and needs, not just my expectations. And the practice of freedom became a representation 
representation of those relationships and the way that we got to kind of transcend all the expectations of what a traditional classroom looks and feels like. I transcended into their homes and into a space of real familial mentor relationship. I am so close with all of them now. It is pretty spectacular. I love that body of work because it is representative and indicative of a time of their lives as they were all getting ready to graduate, most of them at that moment, and thinking about where they are now, that will always be in record forever. And they knew that too. That sort of made it different because they came in, they were like, okay, professor, I set this up and I got this. And <laughs> professor, yeah, I love yeah, it. Exactly. They all call me professor still, some of Amazing. them. And I'm like, we can stop that now. It's officially yes. Jordan. It's like, professor, look, I set this up. I know that you love painting patterns or I wore these shoes because I love the way you paint patterns. Oh. Or And I was like, oh, so you did this on purpose because you know I also like... I, it would be really difficult and I'm probably going to drive myself mad. It was like, yeah, got you, professor. Like, I'm going to wear this shirt, so it's going to take you forever. <laughs> like, they knew me. And that level of knowing me meant that the practice itself got to kind of change along with the paintings. I got to be really in conversation with them because they were making choices that were for me along the way. Totally. But what's so incredible about your work is the fact that it's full of life and lives lived and we get to this exhibition, Amasmo de Carlo, and actually it's work that has been made in the last yeah, year, year in the sense that where has life been? I mean, tell us about this show yeah. and your experience painting when actually there were yeah. no lives to interact with. Yeah, I think this show more than anything is representative of time and time spent and time lost and the way that time felt and functioned this past year, which was a very kind of unclear thing. Things were moving quickly at times, and then things were really slow and felt never-ending. And I got to observe my environment through the lens of kind of slowing down. And that meant that the practice is really kind of more drawn out. It is not as singularly focused around a series in the way that it has been previously. I think that all of the series I have done have been a part of this longer story that I'm trying to tell. And this exhibition is really indicative of that. It's about the long story. It is about having the subways and having the portraits and this landscape of my life come to the forefront. It is a big gestural pull around the landscape of my life and inviting viewers into that. I think that the portrait nasturtium, I call it a portrait even though there are no figures in it because it feels like the most honest portrait of myself I've probably done to date. It's representative of my garden during this time. My partner and I purchased this house and I had my first garden and it was a place that I found love in this year and real stillness. I think that the painting of Wade is another example of that snow being stillness and representative of that. And also the winter and the changing of that season. And then the refreshing, when you enter the exhibition, you're greeted by Adam and Noor and you're greeted by them for a reason. They are indicative of spring for me and renewal. I've been thinking a lot about the way that the time functions and how the snow melts the springtime comes and we get to experience flowers all over again. And that's my summer, that's nasturtium. <laughs> and then we get to experience fall, which was having apple ciders from Harlem public like every other day. Literally the seasons of this year are represented in this painting because I needed those markers of time. They were all part of the story of this year. The show is probably closer to a portrait than I've done yet. 
it's such a sort of collectively beautiful assemblage of paintings in the sense that you really walk through these three different rooms. You actually have to walk upstairs as well mm. into a different place. And we end with these two fantastic paintings opposite each other. Mm. The guy sleeping on the subway mm-hmm. in the snow scene. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's like reflection. Mm, it is. <laughs> and I wanted that moment thinking of her turn in the new museum. Yeah. You end with her turn and there was this moment of pause at the end of the galleries. And I wanted the same kind of moment of pause at the end that you're kind of left in a state of reflection, thinking about what that snow cover and that stillness looks and feels like as we renew again. And there's a story being told through the galleries. It is new for me as well to have an exhibition kind of split between floors, but I really took advantage and wanted to think about what it would mean to have the exhibition tell a story in that way, that you kind of have moment of pause as you transcend into a new room and then experience the work again and then go back down. Yeah. What do you want people to learn from this work? That deep breath is probably most indicative of what they want them to learn, quite frankly. I think it is about pause. It is about the stillness. I hope that they see me more fully in I am probably more vulnerable in this work than I have been to date. I have exercised a display of other people's vulnerabilities, and I have very rarely leaned into my own. And this is an opportunity for me to show kind of all of me more truly and honestly and raw. And I hope that people get to see aspects of that. It's a scary thing for me, but it's also a very exciting endeavor. Jordan Castile, thank you so much for just the most <laughs> incredible conversation ever. Thank you so much. This yeah, has been a dream thank come you true. so much. As is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there is a female artist now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And would you ask them anything or say anything to them? In anticipation of that question, because I have listened <laughs> to your podcast, I was over my bowl of cereal this morning discussing with my husband what... <laughs> What artist? How do you even begin? There's so many artists that it's like, how do you choose one? And ultimately, I fought the notion of saying Alice Neal. We both decided in many ways. That's the one artist that I think if I had the opportunity to meet her, what I would want to know and say is thank you. I think we have both experienced as women something aligned in I think bearing witness to the way that she fought to keep her truth, even in the absence of light, she always worked. She fought in her own individuality that wasn't always pretty, but she stayed true to herself. And I think an honoring of that is necessary, but I want to ask her how and when it was hard and what she did to kind of supersede in those moments of difficulty to keep most true to herself. So she's probably the one. It's... There are many, but we'll give her the credit for today. Jordan Castile, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has really been fun. Yes, it has. <laughs> this has been really fun. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 73rd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Jordan Castile. It was so fascinating to hear all about Jordan's incredible life and career. And for those in London, I urge you all to visit her exhibition, There Is a Season, at Massimo Di Carlo Gallery, which is on view until the 17th of November 2021. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Menange, and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 